You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with Arlo Real Estate. And this week we got Mark Maloof back and we got Jack Seiden of DMV Flippers back. And we've got a bunch of great topics. So first thing we're going to be talking about um, is right up in, our, you know, me and Jack's wheelhouse is talking about Zillow getting out of the flipping game. I'm so like utterly happy to see that fail because it was a ridiculous model and we can get into why, but it was as someone who does this for a living, it was so like, I would love to be back by billions of dollars and then just get to lose money on every flip. Unfortunately, when I lose money, I don't get VC backed. Yeah. So I think in uh, the first year of their venture, they lost something like $350 million. The second year they did a little bit better losing about a hundred, 150 million. And they made through, it up on volume, Russell. Yeah. And then th- Half, through halfway through this year, they had lost over half a billion dollars. Um, just that it, it's crazy. And, you know, Mark was asked, we we're talking about a little bit before Mark got here and um, Mark had asked uh, a little bit about what Zillow was doing. So that's a good question. <laughs> is how good is question. the CEO not fired? By the way, he, 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 how was he not fired? Well, I'm just trying to figure out what exactly they planned on doing. Right. Because I understand the, the idea, I, I guess I understand the idea that Zillow was trying to go for. You know, we've had the Zestimate out for years and years and years, which, you know, those of us in the business have known has always been wildly inaccurate. Um, and so I understand, I guess, their idea of trying to make offers based on an algorithm. But at some point, you've got to have humans involved. You've got to have somebody managing contractors. You've got to have somebody selling the properties. And so I guess I just don't understand where they thought that this was a, a wise idea because we know that money's made on the buy side. Yes. So I actually read a whole article about this last night, uh, actually, ironically. Um, so I think there was a couple things that were going on. So first of all, supposedly in the first quarter of 2020, um, they were making too much money on their houses. Their algorithm was wrong on the other side. Hmm. So the, but I think I, because there's a whole article in the Wall Street Journal, maybe we can like put it in show notes or something. Is that a thing, making too much money? Well, it proved their algorithm wasn't working correctly. It was that it was off. Um, what they, but they weren't buying enough houses at the time. Because right, if you're making, then you want to have more volume. And I read one of the things they ran into that I, I think was just reported yesterday was that they, their algorithm actually may have been somewhat accurate, but that the executives wanted to catch up with um, Open Door, who's another competitor, and they were actually overpaying for houses by up to seven percent and overriding their algorithm. And they actually knew that their algorithm was telling them not to pay that much, and they got caught in a changing market because, as we'll, we'll talk about later, the market has definitely cooled since spring, and they had only paid, so they were actually overriding their own algorithm at a certain point. And that sounds like they were doing not great, but survivable losses, I guess, at the beginning of the first quarter, and by the time. Um, that when they, the algorithm showed they were making too much money, they kind of screwed it up. And then the other thing they did, I mean, they're kind of like, I think, you know, there's that, always that idiot on bigger pocket who's like, I want to invest out of state. Yeah. Except this idiot had billions of dollars. And so they, what they, I think failed to understand this can be a problem with any of these investors who try to do this. Um, you have to have boots on the ground. You have to have contractors lined up, subcontractors lined up. They didn't have any team. They were buying these houses with no way to turn them, especially in, how hot the market was, but you've known for years, Mark. I mean, you're in the contract business. Even before this run-up, it's always hard to get work. And the idea they were going to do this 
without the boots on the ground, it was just a ridiculous strategy on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, one thing that really sticks out to me is right. Trying to rely on an algorithm to come up with the price of the house. When, when you and me are looking at a flip, we talk about what we should be paying for that flip and what we think the sales cost will be on the back end. And we spend a good amount of time having these conversations and talking about, you know, if we're targeting a certain price point, say say seven twenty five on the sale. Not only we're we looking at that neighborhood, we're looking at available other sales in other peripheral neighborhoods, right? To compare, and so we're spending a lot of time doing this, um, and we're both experts at this, and still spending a lot of time discussing it. There's no way that a simple algorithm can price this in instantaneous fashion. Well, it goes beyond that too, right? It's that we always talk about ranges, right? We don't have a number that we're going to get out. We say seven to seven twenty-five. They might be twenty, thirty, even forty grand ranges, which on any one deal, especially with the margins that we have, is fine. Um, we have very high margins, and even if we were to lose twenty or thirty grand, we'd be okay. But when you scale that up, if you're off, they didn't have, I don't think, very big margins. So if you're off twenty grand times ten thousand houses, that's how you start losing. Yeah, I mean, a really dollars. good example is this: is the house that we flipped on W Street Northeast in DC. Um, this particular house was on one street that was uniquely different from the rest of the neighborhood. Um, and so it was going to get a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollar premium, right? Yeah. Against every other street in that neighborhood, right? And that's just something an algorithm was not going to be able to figure out when it's comparing it to other sales. That was one of my favorite stories. Uh, Russell, after we closed the deal, um, one of our mutual friends who we won't name, um, had um, messaged Russell's like, you overpaid for the house. There's no way. We're like, no, we're going to. Uh, because that friend did not understand the distinction of that street yeah. being different. So the houses on the street had a particularly mid, mid-century mid modern flair. No uh, no houses across from it. No houses across from it. And backyards that were, I don't know, two, three times larger oh, than sure. what we would typically find in this part of the city. So all of those things combined made it a much more desirable street than just the next street over. Now, do you think, because I think this is the model. I was actually texting with a different friend about this last night. I think there is some model in which a company like Zillow, Open Door, Venture Capital, or, uh, you know, backed with a lot of money, partners with local people on the ground, me or you, someone like that, um, who and, and kind of backs them up with money and cash. Like, you can imagine a scenario, I'm making this up, like we're, we're making 100 grand in this flip, right, where Zillow had come in and said, okay, let's find more of these. We'll back you up with cash. But they, I think there is a model where capital and tech comes in, but it's going to have to be partnered with boots on the ground. Yeah. I mean, local knowledge, local expertise is what really drives real estate in almost any fashion. So you just have to drill down to what, who those local experts are. Um, I could see that. I don't know if Zillow is going to come back into this arena. I think Zillow makes probably not. I think Zillow makes a ton of money doing what they're good at. Um, and I would imagine that the shareholders are going to pressure the CEO to stay in this, stay in their lane doing what they're good at. And what they're good at is selling leads to real estate. I mean, this agents. is a lesson for any business. This is just happens time and time again. If you read the history of business, businesses, when they try to diversify, it almost always goes poorly yeah. for the most part. Most businesses, you know, um, like you remember there was a story about ESPN once, like one of the reasons they ran into trouble is like, remember they like had a phone, they were going to make an ESPN phone. Do you remember that? Vaguely, vaguely. And they had like, they were going to do like entertainment and like it all collapsed because what they were good at was like showing sports games. And I think it's a very good lesson in business in general. Um, 
you know, stick to what you're good at. Well, the people that focus on, so I, I do a lot of things. Uh, I have rentals, I've done flips, but, uh, I do focus the majority of my time towards uh, real estate sales and I'm really good at it. Um, and when I was diversified doing 10 different things, I wasn't, I wasn't as successful as when I nailed down. I was like, I'm just going to focus on the sales. Hey, shots fired, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> So do you think there is – what did your – Mark point? can't decide what he wants to do. He likes to do those 10 different things. I love to do 10 different things. I'm all about that. He's getting, you know, he's getting I'm easily bored. Business ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah. Um, so do you think there's going to – what do you think the future of the iBuying thing is? Do you think it's going to – they're all going to fail? Some of them will be Well, successful? I think um, Open Door for whatever reason, seems to be doing it better than Zillow did, right? Um, but I think – For now. I think Open Door is buying in – markets where they're going into like say a Scottsdale, Arizona, where there is a subdivision of 3000 homes that only have say two or three different models and they're all virtually the same, right? Yeah. Easy to scale. Um, you can order the same materials. You can order the same. Yeah. When you come into sort of the East coast, um, these older cities, DC, Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, Baltimore, um, the housing stock is also different from block to block to block. Like just in D.C., right, we can go from Columbia Heights where we got Victorians, but Victorian row houses. But those Victorian row houses may have deltas in them of, you know, on the low of 700,000 to as high as almost 2 million, right? And your rehab costs, right? Your rehab costs, this is something that we figured out on a – Victorian is going to be a hundred grand, probably more than it is on one of the ones you're doing in Brentwood. Yeah, and well, so, no so let's, let's talk about that for a second. So, what are you what are you doing differently for the Victorians than you are for the rest of them? Well, they're just shittier. Well, I don't know. Is it, it more? Freighted? They're older houses. They're older, so, so your electrical almost always needs to be updated. Most of these, yep. most of these, I mean, depends, but most of the post World War II stuff is going to have 150 amps, which for a small row home is enough. It's going to have ducts on the central air. Most of those Victorians don't. Um, and so these neighborhoods we're talking about that have these are, you know, Riggs Park, Brentwood, these houses, these row houses that were built after World War II. Usually on the east side of uh, northeast, usually. Yep. Yep. And, yeah, they just have modern, more modern plumbing, more modern electrical. They already have air ducts installed. Um, and that's smaller, saving which tens smaller, of thousands. Which is, which is yeah. a big thing. I mean, we were in a house, uh, the one that we saw in Carver a few weeks ago. And it was, like, kind of similar size to the one that we did in Brentwood, but it was an extra – you know, three, 400 square feet, had an extra bathroom. And we just kind of said, I remember looking at it, we're like, you know, it wasn't that much different, but it was like, okay, there's an extra bathroom. That's seven grand. Um, there was just more square footage. Right? The more bigger it is, right? That's the more flooring we have, the more paint we have, uh, the more molding we have. I think every time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, your rehab costs go up. These row homes generally, um, uh, what they do is they had like the sleeping porch that needs to be converted into a bathroom and master bedrooms, which is what they do. Well, that's insulation. That's so, but you know, you add all these things up, right? Central air, um, electrical, um, the size, the extra bad bedrooms. It's easily yeah, so know, the, 30, 40, $50,000. Yeah. So these world war two post world war two houses are significantly cheaper to rehab than the Victorian, the older housing stock from, the 1800s. Um, and so we need much larger deltas when we go into, say, Columbia. And they take longer. So you want to, A, you have more holding costs, but you also want to make more profit. But that's something like Zillow is not going to be able yeah. to figure out an algorithm. But I mean, so going back to the point, though, where we're talking about, so we can be in Columbia Heights, where just in Columbia Heights, a Victorian row house might have over a million dollar delta in what it's valued at. Um, let's cross Georgia Ave into Petworth. Suddenly we have an entirely different 
type of row house built at a different time, built 40, 50 years later, um, different sizes than what's in. So, you know, quarter mile difference, suddenly the, the best, you know, rehab row house in Columbia Heights might be pushing, you know, upwards of 2 million. Well, the best rehab row house in Petworth might be a million quarter mile away. Um, and both for, you know, comparing rehab to rehab, we're talking about a million dollar difference. An algorithm just can't figure that out on its own. It needs local experts. And it needs people who can go and manage them too. That's yep. the other thing. Um, and that's the other, uh, we, uh, we said, so, so do you think there's going to be success ultimately in these? I think that the success for these companies lies in the areas where uh, all the housing stock is the same. I don't think it works in these East Coast older cities where housing stock just varies dramatically within such small distances. And I do think, and this is something we can talk about for the broader market, I do think a lot of investors, including institutional investors, are pricing in way too much price increases. I don't think prices are going to go down. Well, we're was- going to go back to 2 3 4% growth, which is normal. And I think a lot of these companies think it's going to keep being 20% year over year, which is just like – Well, that's part of Zillow's um, problem. problem, right? So once once the market went from red hot in the first six months of the year to – I don't want to – it's hard to say it's cool or cold. It's, it's normal. A, it's it's normal. a normalized market now, right? I don't so we think went, this market is that much different than it would have been in 2019. Right. So we went from an overheated market to a normal market. And so Zillow was pricing in price increases month, month to month. And suddenly we hit a normal market where – Prices shouldn't be jumping 20000 every month, right? So they could not pivot uh, at least quick enough to changing market conditions. And market conditions can cha- can and do change, you know, very, very quickly. And they did. Uh, really, it was September where our, where our market changed. And that's one of the reasons you've got to build in such big um, buffers into these flips. You know, one of the things that always makes – because I have no doubt the market's going to be in six months. If I have a 100 grand profit margin, the market can – do pretty poorly and I'm still going to make a profit. Yeah. If you have a 20 grand profit margin, you know, that, that can change. In Which a, in a lot of new investors don't realize, yeah. right? I mean, when they run their numbers, they're thinking $20,000. They're thinking, wow, that's, that's 20 grand yeah. in my pocket. You know, they don't realize that the market can change. They don't realize that rehab costs can increase. They might find things behind walls that they weren't expecting, yeah. you know, and that's how a lot of people are, are ones and dones. And I think you can see, I mean, even now, especially in certain like East of the river, like there is price softening where, not that it's going down per se, but you know, those ranges, right? There may have been, I've definitely seen neighborhoods where you'll see one comp that sold at five in March. And now probably the same comp is going at 480, yep. which, which is not really a price decrease really, but it is if, if you're, if that's your 20 grand profit. Right. Because people don't understand that. Or seasonal. The eventual sales price is not a hard and fast rule of what it w- would be, like we mentioned earlier. It's going to be a range, right? So, you know, say we list the house for sale and we only have one interested buyer. Well, we're probably getting list price. We've got two interested buyers. You know, we're getting a little bit more. We get 10 interested buyers. We get a lot more. But we don't know what that exact sale price is going to be. Um, the difference between having three people interested in it versus just four, right? We're in a metro area of six, seven million people. Yeah, it's just one random. more person can change the eventual sales price of that house, another 30, 40, 50 grand if they want it and are bidding up the second person that wants it. Actually, I read that was another problem Zillow ran into is that when they, they had bought their houses, a lot of them in the spring and they were going to hope to sell out in the summer but because they got backed up, they were now selling into the winter. And like even that, that seasonal adjustment that prices are not stable throughout the year. I think we can talk about this. I, 
have found most of the best deals I've had. Almost all of them, with the exception of the one we're working on right now, I've bought in the winter. Yeah. This is the time of year to buy. Yeah, it's definitely this is the time of the year to buy if you're looking for the best deal, right? And then the there is a downside to buying this time of year too, is that there are less choices for sale. Once we get into the spring, far more choices, but far more competition too. So we almost always are going to experience, particularly in the suburbs, our largest price jump is going to be in April, May, June. Um, and then it'll be the next April, May, June where it jumps another 20 grand. And then the year after that, um, this last couple of years has been a little weird because it April, May, June essentially extended from, you know, the whole 12 months of the year. Like the last two years, basically. Yeah. No. But now we're back to a little bit of a normalized market. The market is, uh, I don't, again, I don't want to say it's cold. It's normalized, right? There's less buyers out there during during the winter right now. Um, and so we're not getting 20 offer, uh, you know, bidding houses up 100,000. They're going to go for closer to list. Although I did just get outbid, um, I thought we made a strong offer in Frederick this week where we were, I don't know, 25 grand over. Um, and that's a lot in Frederick. And we surprisingly still got outbid there. But it was a particularly nice house. Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing I've noticed, which is great for us, which is that I've definitely noticed. I feel like the, the stuff that's done and nice is still pretty hot. There's definitely a cooling on the kind of rehab stuff, which is really good for us. Yeah, that's definitely good. I wonder if uh, more of the... With flipping activity being down so much year over year, I wonder if more flippers got pushed out of the market and thus less demand for those houses that need to be fixed up, which is good for for our business. And I think it's important to note here, too, that you have more and more companies getting to the market of offering uh, rehab services to sellers where they don't have to put any money down or very little money down. And so, you know, people that are that previously didn't want to list a property because they thought they wouldn't get that much for it. And they said, ah, let me just I'll just sell it to an investor who can flip it. Now they're more incentivized to use one of these companies. They don't have to put a lot of money down. In some cases, they don't have to put any money down and they can now get top dollar for their property or close to it. Yeah. And a lot of uh, contractors and different companies are actually partnering with the brokerages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of times if they're selling a property and. I'm just going to make up numbers here. Uh, if the property is going to sell for five hundred thousand and they put fifty grand into it, maybe they'll get seventy five thousand in extra value, um, and they can a lot of times put nothing down to get that rehab done because the contractor is going to collect it back at closing. Um, so that has been an interesting. You know, people have been doing that for five, six, seven years, but I think it's really starting to become much more popular as a, as a few brokers just really start pushing that uh, that product. Yeah, and I think more contractors are, are offering that service now, maybe trying to partner with not just you know one real estate agent, as I've seen at least in the last several years, yep. but now trying to offer that directly to, to homeowners. Yep. Um, and I think that partnership is making it so that there's less inventory out there for flippers to purchase. Yep. The house is getting fixed before they ever hit the market as a crappy house. Exactly. Um, so Mark, I want to talk to you about, we had an interesting week, this, uh, interesting story with you this week where, um, there, there was this wholesaler trying to send you a property and it really just sounded like too, too good to be true. Yeah, I right. Text, I, you text, you called me and you were like, 
I have this deal for it's four hundred grand under a list. Or what was it? Was it like four hundred? It was. Uh, it was. Yeah, roughly, roughly four hundred. A little bit more than four hundred under list. And and I did preface it by telling you I'm pretty <laughs> sure this is not legit. Oh, I knew that. I said, but you know, uh, I won't even bother looking into it if you're not interested. Uh, but you said you were interested, and so I looked a little bit deeper into it. And so I'll, I'll give you guys the rundown of what happened. So I had a wholesaler reach out to me, and he said, "Hey, you know, I understand that you buy condos in DC, and that you know happens to be my, my bread and butter." And so he said, "Look, I've got this uh, this property. It's uh, you know we're listing it for we're asking this much for it. You know, it's quite we can a bit. we can talk actual numbers. Okay, let's just not talk the act- the address or the the individuals involved. Okay, fair. So it yeah. was listed on the market for a little under nine hundred thousand. Uh, they were asking 675. He said that it was a listed property. He was upfront about that. He said, we have it under contract. And he said, we're asking 675. Was that, was that we're part direct true? To seller. The 675 part, was that true? I don't know. Um, because they blocked it's out. It's not true. They, okay. <laughs> okay. I, I would suspect probably not, but they blocked out the, uh, their purchase price when they sent me the purchase agreement. They, they had it under contract. Though. Was that legit? Supposedly. No, it's not legit. Okay. There's two different stories. Suppo- here. No, yeah. what I'm saying is supposedly. But we're going to get to how we okay. figured out it wasn't legit. Right. Supposedly they well, had the it Well, the fact that it was grand under list, yeah. was, was that a red flag? Well, that was definitely a red flag. <laughs> well, there, there's more red flags coming. So. Yeah. Uh, so they're like, look, you know, we have it. We're asking six seventy five for it. So I said, well, look, let me run some numbers real quick. You know, I'm a I'm a buy and hold guy these days. I've, I'm pretty much done with the flipping stuff. Um, so let me let me run some numbers and see what I can get for rent on this thing and see if it makes sense. Ran my numbers, didn't make anywhere near sense. Right? I said I'd need to be at around four seventy five for me to even touch this thing, uh, which is you know right around half of of list price. I said I fully do not anticipate for this to work out. I said let me know if I can help you. Four hundred thousand dollars below list. Exactly. I said if anyone has any of those deals, please send them. They're legit. They're <laughs> yeah, legit. legit please deals. Please send them my way. Um, and so he said, well, let me see what, you know, what I can do. And so I figured I'm never going to hear back from this guy. There's no way they're coming more than 200,000 or roughly 200,000 less than what they were asking for. 48 hours later, he said, all right, we got a deal 475. So that's red flag number two, <laughs> right? I mean, or number three or four, depending on if you're keeping count. Um, and so I'm thinking, okay, well, this is, this is kind of weird. I'm like, okay, well, you know, can you call me when you get a chance? Cause I, I really want to talk to you, right? I wanted to get this guy on the phone and you can, in my opinion, you can learn a lot just having a conversation with yeah. somebody. And I wanted to see how straight up he was, how he answered questions. Because so, a lot of times you can you can smell the bullshit really quickly. I mean, I'm a millennial, right? We, yeah. we grew up with computers and stuff. We're used to seeing scams. You know, we. But this guy talked a good game. He did, and that's that's kind of why I'm saying, right? I think that this is probably eighty percent likely to be a scam, and like twenty percent likely to be. A couple wholesalers that have no clue what they're doing, that are maybe dealing with one of two sellers that might have animosity towards another one. I really don't know. Or I wonder if uh, if someone was scamming these guys. Very possibly, yeah. right? I, I really don't know. I don't have enough information to make that determination. Um, Do you know what the scam, like what was the scam? Well, that's, that's my whole point, right? That's why I can't say a hundred percent it's a scam because we never got to the point of like, why are we money? What would they get out of yeah, money? So, right? Western union may. So Mark, Mark texts me the other day and he's like, Hey, I've got this deal. He's like, it's crazy good. I'm about 50 grand short. Can you, can you loan me 50 grand? And I go, is this the condo in Columbia Heights? <laughs> he's like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I've heard, I've heard about this deal. Um, <laughs> I, through Jack. No, through yeah, Jack. I was like, through there's you. no way I think this is legit. I go, but I know the listing agent. Let me give them a call <laughs> and uh, let me get some 
you know, and, and just to be intelligence clear, just to be clear, I knew it was likely not legit, yeah. but in the very, very unlikely chance it was, yeah, I wanted to have my ducks in a row. You got to right? pursue it, right? For, right. Yeah. So I, I called the listing agent. I had just done a deal um, a couple months ago with their team. I uh, had good rapport with them. And I was like, hey, I, I know this is 99% probably not legit. I know you would not sell a prop, <laughs> let a property of yours get under contract for this lower number. But I get this wholesaler trying to sell me and my fir- me and one of my buddies this contract at this price, and he's like, "No, he's like it's it, it's under contract around this other price." He's like, "The buyer's agent is so and so; they're very reputable." Um, he's like, "There's no way." He's like, "You're you're hundred percent being." And just to be clear, you're yeah. getting this inside information because you have a relationship with this guy. You know, yeah. a lot of times this is not information that is shared between agents and right. It, I just had very good. I have good rapport with him, and he, he knows you're a trustworthy guy, and so yeah. he's okay opening up a little bit about his deal. Yeah, and he obviously and, didn't. And he didn't reveal. Yeah, he didn't reveal anything that was uh, confidential by any means. Right. Just that the price we were talking about was nowhere near this. He, you know, here's the buyer's agent. Uh, you know. Super legit people. No one's shady involved here. Um, you know, I was like, it, I was like, thanks. You know, I, I figured this was. I just had to do my my due diligence. Um, and conversely, so I had a relationship with the listing agent on this property. You had a relationship with the title attorney that was listed on this contract too. So, yeah, which is a legit title company, right? Totally I mean, he's, legit. He's, he's on the up and up. Um, and so I, they I work with, they're one of, they're actually one of the few, um, title companies that will work with wholesalers exactly. in, the, in, in the district proper. Yep. And, um, so I gave him a call. I said, look, man, I've got this situation, you know, obviously after talking to you, it was very likely to be a scam deal. I said, look, I just want to make you aware of this. Right. And uh, he said, well, yeah, that's weird. You know, I've got this file open, you know, with my office. This is one that we're working on. And every time I try to reach out to this individual and ask for the uh, seller of contact information, they say, we're not we're not going to provide it to you at this time. Right. Another red flag. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's just red flags all over the place. The here, carnival. So. Yeah. So I just, you know, I really you can't do any title work without talking to the sellers. You can't right. clear the liens. You don't know, you know. So the original purchase agreement they sent me was dated. I don't know. I think it was a few days ago. And um, it had, but it was basically, it was a one and a half page purchase agreement, which in and of itself, fine. Right. I mean, the wholesalers use their own, their own sales agreements. But in the signature portion, it was basically just typed names and they converted it to a PDF. Like they had just typed it up in Word and sent it to me, right? And I'm like, you know, no DocuSign, no dot loop signatures. Like, you know, you guys don't have, oh, they must have sent me, my business partner must have sent me the wrong copy. Let me get you the right one, right? And so then I got another one last night, which is DocuSigned by one of the two sellers, but not the other one. And when I compare the signature on the purchase agreement to the signature on the disclosures on the MLS, on the listing, completely don't. So this is like right? legitimate like fraud. I mean, this is like a yeah. crime. At this point, they were talking crime. So probably, right? Uh, I'm not going to make, look, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to say that this guy, and, and by the way, let me also say this. When I talk to him on the phone, I think what I'm dealing with is maybe somebody who is trying to just daisy chain this and calling this other wholesaler a business partner. 
I don't really know. I'm trying to get him back on the phone, but the last communication we had was last night. I haven't talked to him Just since. Just call him live on the podcast. Well, <laughs> <laughs> we have the phone. The phone. Um, but I am, and I've also asked him to send me over the assignment contract. He said, he said last night, he said, should we send you over the assignment contract? I said, yeah, yeah send it over because I want to take a look at it and I want to see what's, what's on there. And so I'm still going to pursue this as I'm going to buy it. I'm obviously not going to buy it, but I really want to get to the point of understanding what the scam is, because all I can really think of is they're going to take my EMD and run. I yeah. don't know what other scam there would be because they obviously are not interested in closing on this deal, right? They're not making any movement with a title company on getting this thing closed. It's apparently with a different title company from the listing. And so I guess I just don't understand what the scam is. And, and I, mean, oh, I think, I think way, it's a wire. It's a wire scam. I guess. Wire, but but let me add fraud. this too. Let me add this too. They have access to the property. So they, they keep they keep, how do they have access? Well, to the that's property? what I'm trying to figure out. I don't know which. How do you know that they've been getting access to the property? He keeps offering me to, to go view it. Let's go do it. I mean, we can certainly go. I'm I'm down. Field trip. Well, now Last field trip. This uh, adds a new layer because which now is, maybe I should tell this agent, hey, check your Century Lock access logs to see who is. But I want to know is do you have a code? The property. Have a code. I don't have a code. He just said, let's arrange to go see okay. it. He goes, he goes, he's gonna, I maybe he's going to rob you. Maybe this is like a robbery. Just keep in mind, right? This is all like we're still in communications. And the last thing was our was our messages last night where he said, you know, can I, should I send you over the assignment contract? And I assume you're going to want to view the property so we can get that set up. So I wrote back. I said, yes, yeah, send it over. And yeah, let's set up a viewing, right? But that's that's another reason that I'm, I'm just I'm so kind of weird. wondering what's going on. And that's why I'm maybe thinking that maybe there's some animosity between the sellers. Maybe it's, you know, a couple that are divorcing. Who knows? That's possible. Who knows, right? And maybe one's trying to screw the other one. Because how else would you have access to the property other than just really fraudulent? Unless it's one of those things where they string you along, well, I'd love to get access to the property before I do. But he keeps offering. This is not the first time he's offering. No, but maybe when you actually say, he's like, yeah, I can get you access, but first – you need to wire me five grand. Well, I'm maybe. certainly not going to do that. No, I understand that, but maybe that's the scam. It's or who string knows? Like, string you along until maybe. maybe it's like maybe it's like a family member who's addicted to heroin or something that has a key to it, and they're yeah. going to show up in a per- at closing with a fake ID to try to close, you know, and sign for the closing. There's so many different possibilities. Yeah, we need to like have like an update next podcast. Yeah, yeah. On- so I've I've certainly not told them that I'm not going to buy this property. Obviously, I'm not going to buy it. But I'm just going to keep running this through because I'm really just genuinely curious. Don't what send, the scam don't send is. him a link to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, who knows? They they might know Mark from the podcast. Maybe that's how they know he buys condos. No, so they posted up in one of the uh, or this I shouldn't say they this one guy posted up that I've been talking to in one of the investor groups. Yeah. And you know, does anybody buy properties in DC? And you know, I certainly responded to it because that's what I do. And yeah. then I got all the details, and here we are. Yeah. So the moral of the story is if there's a $900,000 listed property in the market, and the wholesaler tells you they're going to sell it to you for four seventy five. dollars No, no, six seventy five, and then drops it another two hundred grand in 48 hours. Yeah. Probably um, not legit. It, it's probably not legit. So I do have a question. So we talk about wholesaling a lot. I don't think we're particularly big fans of them. But like, what do you do? How, how would you stop yourself? Obviously, there are some reputable wholesalers who I'd – I've done deals with, and I'd wire the money. But what do you do if you have a deal under contract you think is probably legit, legit, but uh, you know, dealing with the wiring of money? Yeah. So, t- uh, title company or legitimate real estate brokerage is the only person that right. you're going to allow to hold your money. Conversely, if there's any 
even whiff of something not being right, you're going to want to make sure that this that this money, this earnest money deposit is going to be a very low number, right? Yes. If because not given ten grand or whatever. Yeah, we we don't want to get in a situation where we can't get that money released from the title company because we can't get a signature from some scammer who disappeared, right? So we want to keep keep that number really low to an amount that you know, if it's a thousand dollars, all right, losing a thousand dollars is not gonna Bankrupt. make or break you. If you get a fifty thousand dollar EMD and there's some scammer out there um, tying up your money. It, it might sit in an escrow account for years before you get it back, if if not ever, right? Yeah. Um, so reputable title company or brokerage holding it, not some one-person brokerage where you don't know the person, you know, large companies or the title company. We've definitely seen, I think, scams, too strong of a word, but there are definitely agents who we know who are probably not ethical and I wouldn't give money to. I mean, oh, definitely. Or 100%. Uh, one of the things a lot of agents run into that I think is pretty clearly illegal, right, is this um, net listing as a licensed agent, which is pretty, I think, pretty clearly. Yeah. So I, I'm always of the mind that if if there is a licensed agent who is wholesaling in a state where net listing is illegal, mm-hmm. I, for one, can't understand how you can get a property under contract for 400000 assign that contract to someone else for four fifty, and take the net difference between those two. To me, that seems exactly like a net listing. So it is not something I do. It is not something I encourage licensed individuals to do unless you are in a state. You know, state of Florida, for instance, allows net listings. None of our states here, Maryland, D.C., or Virginia, is in, all three of them here, net listings are illegal as they are in most states. Uh, but yeah, when you're dealing with wholesalers, you are generally dealing with uh, pretty sketchy areas, sketchy people. Again, not all of them. We have friends that are perfectly ethical in this uh, range, but definitely for some reason, the wholesaling profession draws a l- is where most of the scammers seem to be. Well, if you were legit, populated. you just get your license. Yeah, and I think this speaks also very highly to networking and knowing the people in the industry, right? Because if yeah. I didn't, if you and I didn't have a relationship. I never would have reached out to the listing agent, or at least I probably wouldn't have. Yep. He certainly wouldn't have told me what he shared with you because yep. I don't know him. He doesn't know me from Tom, Dick, or Harry. If I didn't have a relationship with the owner of the title company, then I wouldn't have been able yep. really to get any information. Yeah, so the more, the more and more people you know and who those people are, right? Are your friends connected to other real estate professionals? Really allows you to weed out anything that doesn't seem right. And I feel like at a certain point, like you also know – I'm going to say this. Obviously, you know, we don't know everyone, but you start to have, you know the people in the investment game. So there's yep. wholesalers I know who I would trust. There's wholesalers who I wouldn't. There's agents. And so you kind of know if someone's outside of that kind of group of people that yeah. you're aware of, then that also throws And the flags. names of these sketchy people, uh, especially if they're doing a lot of business, we know. They get around. We know. We, there, we are people, know. there are people who yep. we know. Yeah. There, there are people I would not hand a dime to. Um, there's someone I really want to shame on this podcast, but yeah, I Yeah, let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the the names of those sketchy people, if they're doing a lot of deals, are going to get around. Um, and I will give a shout out to, I'm not affiliated with these groups in any way, shape, or form other than being a member, but there's a couple Facebook groups. One is the, uh, I think it's called REI Censored Blacklist, and another yeah. is called, I think, REI Censored Blacklist, Be Cautious of These People. So there are groups out there where you can, I think they're, they're national groups. They're not focused just yeah. on our area, but you know anybody can post There is them. a local group of ours that has become, I don't I think you've seen it very dramatic. There's yeah. been a lot of uh, you know, 
uh, what do they call it? Um, a lot of drama going on in yeah. that group. But and it's very interesting to me. I think we're talking about the same group. But yeah, it's very yeah. interesting to me how some people respond to <laughs> accusations. <laughs> and to me, that says a lot. Yeah. Um, it's just so childish, though, the whole thing. I know everyone involved. It's. Uh, but I also appreciate people I, putting that out there because I want to know who even has these no, accusations I know. against them. Yeah. But I do right? love when I see a wholesaler complaining that someone else is trying to snake their deal. And I, I always think like of all the, the snakes, um, all the snakes. Are I always think of that Spider-Man meme where there's multiple <laughs> Spider-Man's pointing yeah. at each other. <laughs> it's like pot, the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there are definitely some reputable wholesalers, right? And absolutely. And, yeah, for and sure. I just bought one from a wholesaler who's pretty reputable. Yeah. That's the deal that we have. Um, but they are few and far between, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, so I just bet. Do your homework. My on. guess is there's less than ten. I probably trust in them. There's probably less than five. I would wire money yeah. to without really asking that many yeah. questions. Yeah. All right, so well, I have a question. Yeah, let's. So next topic of discussion here is this uh, is a good problem to have. I think. Yeah, Jack has this flip going on in Brentwood. Um, awesome property. It's on Thirteenth Place Northeast. We're trying to decide should he go through and flip it as expected, and we'll go through some numbers here, or should he? Keep it as a rental and do a burr on it. Burr. Uh, well, and for those of for those of you that don't know what burr is, so burr is an acronym that stands for buy, rehab, Refi- rent, refinance, repeat. So, right, we're going to buy a property. We're going to spend a lot of money value adding and re- rehabbing it. We're going to throw renters in there. Then we're going to do a cash out refinance to try to pull it as much of our money back out of the property on the back end. But what makes this property quite interesting is a burn. Burring can be good, but you usually get maybe, you know, if it's 20% down payment, you're getting at best 10% equity. It's basically impossible to pull all of your money out in a burr. And if you do that, you're probably losing money on a rent. It's very hard to pull out, um, like, you know, I think of most houses we would do maybe, I'm thinking like Fort Totten, Riggs Park area. Maybe you're buying at 450. You're in for six. It's worth seven. So you've created some equity. You've created that 100 grand delta, yeah. but you're still coming out probably easily 70, 80 grand in cash. But this deal, we could pull, I think, almost all, if not every dime of our money out and break even on the rent, which makes it incredibly tempting. And own an asset in an appreciating neighborhood where there's a lot of development over in this neighborhood and, and in the peripheral neighborhoods. Um, it's a location where you might want to look to buy a rental anyways. Yeah, so you know, I don't know if people are familiar, there that uh, public housing complex, Brooklyn Manor, uh, I think it's slated to be torn down and then they're going to rebuild the excuse development. They'll, I think the people from Brooklyn Manor are going to come back in the um, – doing new, you know, mixed use with some of the market rate and some of them subsidized. But so that whole neighborhood is going to change over once that gets yeah, and, done. And right across the street, uh, if we cross New York Ave from there, which this property is right off of New York Ave, we get into Ivy City where there's been huge development over the last half decade. Um, we got, you know, the breweries over there. We got restaurants. We get the shopping. We get the Target. That neighborhood is transformed. So it is very, it is very peripheral to where there's already a lot of development going. And on. I believe Douglas has some lot on fifty. Uh, there's some big piece of grass if you drive by there that I think is a Douglas development. Probably. So um, to me, the two things that are critical and why I would, I would, I would do nothing but a burr okay. on this is you're in an appreciating market and. Your cash out refinance is all tax free money, right? I don't know what you're paying in taxes on your flips. Are you somewhere around thirty? Yeah, probably about thirty. Thirty percent, somewhere around depends, there. But probably about thirty. I mean, to me, it's all it's all cash free money. Take that money and recycle it. Yeah. So let, wh- wh- why don't we talk about some of the numbers here, right? So we 
bought this property for 430, right? 430, yep. Um, with closing costs, what are we at? Like 440, 450? We went 450. Okay. So we're into it for 450. We had, we had to pay double tax and record on this one. Yep. Um, and what was the rehab on this? So we're not quite done yet. And I'm sure, like at the end, you always have stuff go up. I'm thinking we'll probably be, when everything is said and done, probably a 140 rehab. Okay. So let me uh, get my calculator. So 450, here. I can tell you, plus 140 is 590. So we're into this for 590. Well, um, more than that. With closing costs on the back end, uh, holding costs, we're going to be in, I think, almost exactly to the dime, somewhere between 615 and 625. Mm. I think 625 is probably a pretty healthy. And so if we were to burr this, and let's say that we were able to get a... Well, I guess if we're burrowing, we're actually only in for 590. We have no closing costs. Six. Okay. Six. Because 600. So, yeah. So if we're selling it, we're... 625 or so. 625. And if we are keeping it 590. So... If we got a seven hundred thousand dollar appraisal on this, I think we get it to appraise for more. But well, that gives us five twenty five back out. So you would no, I have it. You guys will do eighty twenty, right? Uh, we'll do an eighty percent on a rate and term. We'll do seventy five percent on a cash out. Okay, so seventy five. All right. Yeah, so you would be leaving, you know, sixty sixty five thousand and a seven hundred thousand appraisal. And you bought you this a, when? I bought this in August. Oh, you paid cash for it? Yeah. Okay, so you wouldn't have any seasoning. I wouldn't have any seasoning. There's no regardless, liens regardless, on it. There'd be no regardless. seasoning. We could do this right away. But keep in mind, for those listening, if you do have liens on a property and you are trying to do a cash-out refi, you, there is a six-month seasoning. Sometimes we have been able historically to sometimes get them done in less time. Some at the four-month mark. We're seeing less and less of that these days. We're seeing maybe 60% of them done at the five-month mark. But I would figure for your numbers when you calculate your holding costs, figure six months if you're doing a cash out. Great so term, we, no seasoning. If we were to get the appraisal up to seven twenty five, that's yeah. five forty three. See, I thought you guys did eighty, which does change my numbers. Yeah, this so that changes a little bit. And so, what we're looking at on the profit for a flip, um, we figure the low end will sell this for about seven. Uh, the high end, we think we'll sell for about seven twenty five. And if we're into it for six twenty. We hit the high end of the range. That's about a hundred thousand on profit yep. for you. Another consideration is um, Jack's going to be coming onto my team as a real estate salesperson um, in the new year, and so this would actually be his first listing. And it's good to get my numbers up, right? And so this could be another factor in your decision: is um, we're going to have graduated splits, and so is it good for Jack to get in there and start building his volume and also get the experience of, hey. This will be your first listing. We'll be able to walk you through that, get that experience, just be able to make a little bit of the money on the commission too. Um, but even more important, pushing your volumes higher so that you can get the, the next level on the graduated split scale. But I think we should talk about more from a philosophical standpoint of kind of so your philosophy is always, always bar, right? Well, let me ask you this question, Jack. You know, you're joining Russell's team. You know, this could be your first listing. This could add to your volume, right? Picture yourself in 10 years. Where do you see this property going you know, where do you see this area going? And will you in 10 years regret selling this thing to make that first commission, right? And there's no right answer here. There's no wrong answer, right? Well, it's really up to you. We can get really. To me, the answer is I'm going to hang on to it. We're going to get really into the weeds here. So first of all, it is of my opinion, it will certainly be more in a decade, almost certainly, that as I've said, I think we're going to see normal growth, which is not bad, right? But two, three, four percent. I do not think it's going to be going up 50 grand a year. I think those days are over. I think this so I think the appreciation will certainly be there, but I actually think it's going to be a lot less. And I actually wonder if appreciation 
And the okay. next decade could trail appreciation for the last decade because we've just seen so much of it. It'll go well, up. it's interesting you say that because in 2019, I was telling every client I had, I don't think in the next decade we will see as much growth as we had in the previous. So don't expect the same appreciation rates. And then 2020 came and the government printed uh, $5 trillion. Sure. Um, so in the last year and a half, I have changed my position that I had in 2019 where now I think that we will have as much, if not as, if not more growth in the 2020s than we had in the teens. Well, you always have that, but and I know you're thinking about the 70s, but to play devil's advocate, we have seen inflation in real estate. It hit it first. Now we're seeing in other things, used cars, um, pretty much everywhere. But we've seen, what, basically 30% in the last two years. So it's, it's, it's happened, right? A lot, of, a lot of that inflation has already happened. Not to say there isn't going to be more, but I don't think – it's not that it's starting from zero. We've seen that 30%. That was, that, that was the money printing. Yeah, so I think if I think a lot of people were saying the same thing in 1975 when literally housing prices, car prices had already doubled. They would double again. In the next yeah, but they're going to jack years. rates. Well, well, that's actually another. So we can get really nerdy about this. So the one reason I'm actually considering it more than anything, and this is a good, interesting thing for anyone who's looking to buy right now, rates are going to go up, right? They're going to. And, and so that's a great question. So we know how to tame big inflation. They will go right? up. This, there is no Paul Volcker taught us. You jack up rates, people will stop spending money, and inflation will get under. But that comes with a price. Um, what they're going to jack rates this year, 100%. What happened, but what happened when Paul Volcker pushed rates so high to tame inflation? Like a recession. Yeah. It, with the worst unemployment rate we've ever had since the Depression, bigger than the Great Recession. Uh, we hit 11% unemployment rate in the early 80s. Sure, but that was because it had gone on for so long, right? I think if they can get rates under control in the next year or so, they might only have to do it a quarter point, a half point. And I, and I, I don't think a quarter point or a half point will have any Well, there's a theory, there's a theory that, that I kind of buy that inflation is somewhat psychological. If people think they're going to tame inflation, it tames it sort of by itself. People think it's going to keep going out of control. It goes out of control, and a lot of it's psychological. I don't know. There's been a psych. There's been a lot of people proposing the idea the last like half decade, right? That if people believe that there won't be inflation, there won't be, and believe that no matter how much money we printed, there wouldn't be because people didn't believe inflation would happen. I, I mean, I there is a psychological it. aspect, but people have been making the opposite argument for the last until this past year and a half. They've been making the opposite argument, saying we don't believe there will be inflation, therefore there isn't. Sure, but there, but I'm just saying. I think if the Fed Right. So there's that aspect. This is getting very nerdy, but this yeah. is good. But I, I don't think a quarter point, a half point, even one point will have any but substantial the, effect on taming inflation. Beyond that, though, don't you think that it is because that regardless, because people always talk about oh, there's going to be price drops, which you know might happen because of the rate hikes. That now is a good time to buy housing because you're locking in that rate. And that, that rates, regardless of what it's going to be, you think it's going to be more than I do, yeah. but there's going to be rate hikes in the next year or two, which makes yeah, it a good Yeah, I mean, well, I've been, on, I've been on record for the better part of a decade um, when I was borrowing at 5.5% saying, <laughs> I think we need to load up on personally as much debt as we can at 5.5%. Um, so certainly at, you know, at 4 and Three and a half and three percent. I certainly think that if I was if I was committed to that at five and a half percent, I'm committed to that at three and a half percent. So one other interesting thing we're just going to nerd out here that that affects my strategy. So I think one of the things that a lot of investors um, don't think about. I think a lot of investors are using FHA right first time they're doing. They're um, doing- I I almost never have FHA first time buyers. Okay, um, the three percent. 
3% Fannie Mae, 3% down Fannie Mae home ready loan is a far superior product. And most people are going to use that instead of an FHA. Um, so, but you're saying, I'm saying most first time investors are using low down payments, right? Regardless of the exact product. A lot of them, yeah. So at 3.5%, it makes absolute sense to put your money into real estate, right? Yeah. The leverage is sort of infinite. Yeah, when you're leveraged at 97%. You um, have to do it. Yeah. When you're doing investment and it's not a primary residence, you're doing 20%, which is still 5 to 1 leverage, which is great. And what makes real estate more valuable than the stock market is the leverage, right? Yeah. If it was zero, if it was exactly even, you'd much rather be in the stock market, right? If, if there was no leverage. If you were cash, cash. Yeah, so all things being even, um, you take the more passive route, which is just the stock market. But it is the leverage aspect that, that creates the situation where your internal rate of return with real estate is usually going to be higher. So I always measure this when I sell a property. My internal rate of return on my own properties in the D.C. metro area almost always, when I sell it is when I calculate it, is around 23%. Um, I've had some, you know, a little bit lower, some a little bit higher, but they all pull right around that. So my thought process is always, um, I definitely think real estate is still a much better rate of return. But once you get into these cash out refis and you're at four to one leverage, right now your leverage is starting to drop. The marginal difference is a little bit higher in the, um, in the stock market in the, um, sorry, in the real estate, but the stock market starts to become very appealing at once you're only leveraging Four to one. So one of the reasons I'm not sure what I'm going to do the arguments for keeping it as a flip is I can keep that 100 grand, put it in an index fund. It's totally passive. It's liquid. And what return? And this is always kind of a, I guess a personal choice. What return premium do I need on real estate to make it worth the the less liquidity? And yeah. So my my guess is so where I'm usually at a uh, at an 80 percent LTV and I'm getting a 23 percent IRR. 75. I'm guessing if I'm at a 75% LTV, that's probably dropping it um, probably somewhere around the 15, 16% right. uh, IRR range, um, which is still substantially higher than uh, and without. So none is higher than the market, but you're also typically you're creating a situation where you were less liquid, but also a situation where you were less volatile. True, true. But obviously, it goes to age too, right? At 26, you can be a little more volatile. Absolutely. So if you guys are interested in whether we should burr or flip this property for Jack, uh, I'm going to throw up a poll on Saturday around midday. It'll run for 24 hours. We'll, we'll throw that up. I will my, make my this major financial decision based on the yeah. results of that poll. So uh, <laughs> just, it's going to be on my Instagram at, at Russell T. Brazil. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already follow me on there. But we'll throw up this poll midday on Saturday or run until midday on Sunday. Um, maybe we'll talk about it, the results of this poll. Maybe Jack will go with what you guys say or maybe <laughs> maybe you won't. Um, no, but, I am, this is it. I, this is a major financial decision. If you guys are wrong, I'm going to blame all of our listeners. You guys I'm really curious to see where this falls. Yeah. I'm really curious. Which uh, which way? So, Mark, you're going to vote on the poll. You're going to vote for him to flat, keep flat, it as a burr? Burr, 100%. And then he's going to come to me for the loan. Mark. Huh? You only get one vote. Well, one vote per account, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be just Mark's going to spam it out. <laughs> yeah, so this should, this this will be interesting. Um, so, anyways, check back with us in a couple of weeks. After, uh, after the new year, we are going to go uh, weekly on this podcast. Um, also... 
probably in January, I think we're going to start back up our Rockstars Meetup. If you've been to them before, uh, we bring in awesome investors to speak. Uh, we've been shut down during COVID. But if you want to sign up for the meetup, go to www.dcreirockstars.com. Uh, we're probably going to have a meetup sometime around the mid, uh, third week of January, I believe. And so we're really looking forward to that. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts. 